right, who's ready for the word today? So we're uh, in our second week of our series right now called The Final Week, and we're just kind of moving through a series of events sort of progressively uh, that happened during the last week of Jesus's life. I asked you last week in part one to think about how John closes out his gospel when he says, these are the things that Jesus did that we can account for. (laughs) Um, that are written in the scriptures. But if everything that Jesus did, all the miracles, all the amazing things were written down, I suppose not even the earth could contain all of the books that would be written, right? That's a profound thought and statement about how amazing and how many things that Jesus did. Uh, I kind of feel a little bit like that when you consider, hey, let us talk about all the amazing things that happened in the last week of Jesus's life on Easter Sunday in our service, It's like, come on, right? Uh, And so I wanted to take a little bit more time this year, go through for three weeks this series and build up to it. We kicked off last week uh, starting with what we would call Saturday and the anointing at Bethany. So if we're saying Jesus was crucified on Friday, the Saturday before that, we would call the anointing at Bethany. I also mentioned uh, for the scholars in the room, uh, let's not get too hung up on exact days because I understand, right, that there are certain days that it's not precise to figure out. There's three different calendars that we look at. There's the Jewish calendar where the day starts at evening. There's the Galilean calendar where it would start at morning. And then we operate off a Gregorian calendar where it's midnight, the new day starts. So when you look at all of those calendars and all the gospels and you lay it all down, uh, you could spend a lot of hours, and I have, looking at when exactly did this happen, Uh, And so I think that we're pretty close, but I'm just asking you, let's not get too hung up on days. My intention of telling you the days is so you can put yourself in the story and let's work through this last week of Jesus's life. Fair enough? All right. So last week we started with the anointing at Bethany. Then we went into the triumphal entry, which would have been on the next day, Sunday, which we call Palm Sunday. And then we moved on to the betrayal of Judas uh, and how that was really through a series of days during the week. It kind of began earlier when he conspired with the Pharisees, and then the full-blown act escalated until he kissed Jesus on the face, obviously, and then he, he sealed the deal on his fate and his betrayal. So today, we're going to pick up from there and actually go uh, slightly back from the betrayal on Tuesday, Wednesday, where it started, and we're going to go back to Monday, and we're going to talk about the temple cleansing. And so I'm not, this isn't number one, this is actually number four, because we're going to build through the whole series, all right? Talk about the temple cleansing. So jump with me to Matthew 21, verse 12. Let's read. Jesus went into the temple of God, and he drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple And he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So that would have been, let's say, Monday evening. Now, if you remember last week, I told you 
that during the last week of Jesus' life, while much of what he's doing in the ministry is happening in the city of Jerusalem, it's the last Passover. Think about this. Jesus is coming in. He has the awareness and the knowledge that this is my last one. I've been doing this for all the years of my life. This is my last one. Try to think about that. If you were coming into a place where you knew, like, it's getting ready to end. This is the last time I'm going to have the opportunity to do this. Jesus is feeling all of that. It says he went out of the city and he stayed at Bethany, which we know to be likely Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. He had these lodges, these quarters that he would normally stay at. They were, uh, he was a guest there often. So while he's in the city during the day, most of the evenings, it's, it's uh, clear that he's going out of the city to Bethany, which is just over to the east, and staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and then kind of working his way back and forth during the days, right? And so he comes in and he flips over the table of the money changers and those who are selling doves. So quick question, why does anybody want doves? I mean, what's the point of that, right? Have you ever thought, like, why are they buying doves? I don't know. Anyway, so he, he comes in, he flips over the tables of the money changers, and if you can picture this, when, like in Israel, when you go outside of where the temple was, you can still see some of the ruins and old walls and remains. They had set up right outside of the temple what I would liken to kind of like a flea market quarter. It was just like tables and booths, and it was commerce and currency being exchanged. Here's what was happening. Those who were interested in taking advantage of God's people were exploiting the situation. And let's pay attention to the reaction of Jesus. Our loving, gentle Jesus, right, the Lamb of God, who's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, comes in and he flips over these tables. He flips it on its end. Uh, if I could say it like this, he's livid about what he sees. I want to remind you also, this isn't the first time Jesus did that. His ministry is actually bookended with this same thing. He did this in the beginning of the ministry. He saw this and flipped him over. And right here at the end of his earthly ministry, he's doing it again for a second time. Uh, there are those, unfortunately, who are willing to exploit the situations and take advantage of uh, those who are a part of the flock of God, that are a part of God's family. There are those who have wrong intentions in how they would manipulate or prostitute uh, religion or the gospel or something like that. And here's what I want to encourage you with today, because we look around and we're, we're supposed to be discerning, supposed to be wise. We know that, um, but let's just face it. We can't see everything and we don't know the intention of every person's heart, right? But here's what I want you to know. Nobody is more furious about this than Jesus. Nobody is making a bigger deal about others taking advantage of God's people than Jesus is. So when it's happening, I would just say to anyone who is in a situation like thinking about it, man, boy, I would not want to have that level of accountability on my shoulders, right? As a member of the family of God, here's what I know. God's looking out for me. He's looking out for you. He's going to protect us. Yes, we need to be wise and discerning, but Jesus is always looking after the sheep of his flock. He's the master and chief shepherd, amen? It says uh, in the Gospel of John, at the beginning of this, when he flipped over the money changers' tables, it says that the disciples realized when he did that what was written in Psalm 69. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy that they accredited him with in this moment. It says they remembered how it said that he, the zeal for the house of the Lord will consume me. Right? It was a prophecy about the Messiah. Zeal for the house of the Lord will consume me. Zeal or zealous in the Greek 
actually is a word that means, if you were to give a description, Amber, it means water, the sound of water boiling. Now, you may or may not know this, but water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. So at 211 degrees Fahrenheit, you have really hot water. At 212 degrees Fahrenheit, particles and molecules are exploding and bursting all into the air. Water is turning into gas. It's a boiling over point, right? This is what I believe it's showing us is that we can have a relationship with God, with a zeal for the Lord, the presence of God in our lives and in our church that can be hot water, or we can get on fire for Jesus in our relationship with him, so much so that there's a sound echoing from the relationship that we have and the zeal that we have for the Lord. Jesus is zealous for the house of the Lord, right? He's, he's got a passion for that. And I think that when we see the house of prayer that he talks about, my father's house will be a house of prayer. Oh, man, this just made me think when I was reading this this week about how we opened up those prayer rooms in both of our campuses a few weeks ago, about a month ago, and they've just been filled with people. I mean, I love it. I come in, and they're just they're filled with people all of the time. I do not know all the prayers that are being prayed, but much is being bathed in prayer. It is a house of prayer. It is becoming a greater level of prayer in the culture. Let it be said, my father's house is a house of prayer prayer, right? Prayer moves things. And I just want to encourage you, man, anytime that our building is open, anytime the campuses are open, those prayer rooms are open, come in, you are welcome, right? Remember, this is your house. This is your church. This is a resource God is giving us. It's not mine. It's, 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 it's yours. We are the church. This is a resource God is putting in our hands to use for ministry, to use for what God is calling us to do. I want you to make yourself at home there. I know I had a meeting one time a few years ago with Pastor Daryl, who is the pastor at Hope Church, and he's in transition right now, actually, over the next number of months or maybe a couple years where he's going to be moving on and passing the baton, and he's had a great run, and he's established a really amazing foundation in that church in this community. One day we were at lunch, and I was just kind of picking his brain about some ministry wisdom and advice from all of his years of experience. He was showing me around the building over there at Hope, tons of rooms and space, you know, 50,000 square feet, whatever it was, uh, and they were doing some remodeling, and I was like, wow, this is just amazing, and you know, the building is, uh, you're remodeling, doing some stuff, kind of bringing it up to nice condition, that's really exciting. He said, you know, I'll tell you something about that. He said, it's great that we're doing it, and we want to kind of make it fresh and make it look good. He said, but I think too many pastors, when they get this nice new building, they get the wrong mindset. They're worried about something getting spilled on the carpet or the paint getting scratched on the walls. He said, from the very moment we got this building, I told the Lord, Lord, I want to use this thing up for ministry. Use it up, God. I want things to happen in here that you are calling us to. I don't care about the building. I care about the work that's happening in this facility. I just thought that was some amazing advice. And I think Jesus has a great uh, value on the prayer and the culture that's in the house. The uh, next one we're going to talk about, number uh, five, would be the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. So what this is, is probably on Tuesday when Jesus is coming back out, headed towards Bethany to stay at night, they stop off on the Mount of Olives, and uh, Jesus kind of has like a sermon. And if you read chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, I think it's Mark 13 and uh, Luke, 
21, you can read about the same events. But in Matthew 24 and 25, you can see where Jesus starts to talk about signs that will be evident when he returns. Now, I think this is incredible because Jesus is, he's here now, so he's already upon them in the first coming. But before he even leaves, he starts dropping seeds, he starts dropping clues, starts dropping seeds of expectation in their heart that, hey, I'm coming back. There's a first and there's a second coming, right? Jesus came the first time to seek and save the lost, and when he comes again for his saints, he will usher in the eternal age, and we'll be with him for all of eternity after that. That's a hope and anticipation the believer is meant to live with in their heart. He says there'll be a lot of signs, a lot of things that are going on, uh, but you won't know the day or the hour, but there'll be signs to look for. And there's a lot of things that he talks about. We won't get into all that today, but I will tell you one that I think is kind of a standout for me right now at the time that we're in. He said that for those who love me and those who follow me, you'll be hated for my name's sake. Let me say it this way. If you love Jesus outwardly, you'll be persecuted for that. He said that's going to happen. This is why it's so important that we develop a a fortitude, a, a strength of resolve to our faith. We, we don't have a little private Christianity. <laughs> we kind of keep behind the door. I, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, but I'm only a Christian here. Look, there's private times of worship and presence. Absolutely. This is not what I'm talking about. But our faith needs to have a public expression. We need a people who are unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of their faith in order to push back against a culture that wants to squash that out of everything unashamed. Oh, and then he says, so these are some of the signs of when I come back that it's happening, uh, but until then, until it happens, here's some things you need to be busy about. He talks about stewardship. He talks about serving the least of these. I love that one. These are like boom, 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 a bunch of parables that he tells. When he talks about serving the least of these, you know what he says? He says, when you do that, you serve me. That's pretty amazing, right? Here's, the, here's what I get out of that. There's a lot of serving that we're going to do that's spirit-led, that God's leading us into, uh, that will get no public recognition and get no credit. And Jesus is saying, I just want you to know something. When you do that, you're doing that for me. Uh, wow, is that not a revelation of serving? I mean, we serve each other and other people, absolutely, but at the highest level, the greatest call, we're serving Jesus when we serve with a true servant's heart. He said, I just want you to know that when you do it, you're serving me, and that should be enough for all of us. He says, there's things that uh, you need to be busy about doing until that happens, and then he says this, no one knows the day or the hour, and he compares two servants. One servant thinks that, The master isn't coming back for a while, and so he acts really recklessly and carelessly and irresponsibly with what he's been entrusted with to steward for the master. The other servant, basically you see this picture of like looking out the window, just thinking the master's going to be home at any minute, so I'm going to work and labor every single minute of my day as if he's going to show up right now. And Jesus says, I know you don't know the day or the hour, but here's what you need to know. You need to live like it's happening today. You need to live always like it could be at any moment when it's upon you because you're going to live differently if you do. 
right? And that's, that's, that's where our, our, the, the thrust of our life and our purpose, our calling, our serving comes from. It's like, man, I don't know if I have tomorrow. I don't know if my lost friend is going to make it because I don't know if they're going to die tomorrow or if Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. I don't know the hour or the day. I got to play like time is running out because that's going to change how I walk, behave, and walk out my purpose. That's, that's a way for you to think about it. So I remember one time talking about not knowing the day or the hour and acting differently when you know the master's returning. Uh, when we were in, I was in high school, my brother Josh and I, we were kind of a little bit of partiers, um, just a little bit. And, and uh, my mom and dad were going out of town for the weekend. My brother Brandon, who was third in line, and then my sister Brittany, who was the youngest, uh, he had a hockey tournament out of town, and we traveled a lot, so they were gone a lot. And they took Brandon and Brittany out of town for this hockey trip. And I remember them saying to Josh and I, okay, boys, because we were old enough to stay home, right? They were like, uh, we're going to be back on Sunday. And I was thinking, why are we going to be back on Sunday? We got Friday and Saturday. All right. Yeah, my, this house better be spotless. Telling you right now, there better not be anything going on, right? So they head out Friday for the for the trip, and uh, and of course, you know, Josh and I had about a hundred friends over on Friday, and again on Saturday night. I think it just continued on uh, like a continuous party. And so Sunday morning came around, and Josh and I and a couple of our buddies that hung with us through the whole thing, uh, we're going around and we are cleaning up everything. JJ, we're mopping the floors. I mean, stuff we had never done before, right? We're sweeping, we're vacuuming, picking up cans and bottles out of the yard. I mean, we're just, this place is looking immaculate. Josh is supposed to get rid of the trash because we don't want all those bags of bottles and cans in the, in the garage, you know? So he leaves and goes to take care of the trash while we finish up, comes back. We kind of sit down, take a breath. Look, place looks amazing, yeah. Mom and dad get home Sunday evening, like they said. They come in, they're looking around, they're seeing all this place. Wow, boys, this is, I'm impressed, really good. Yeah, yeah, you know, we took care of the place while you're gone. So everything's great, right? About an hour later, we're just sitting there chilling Sunday evening, and Josh and I are like, man, I need to rest now. And uh, there's a knock at the door, and dad opens the door, and it's this guy that we don't recognize, and he's there, he's like, uh, yeah, is this the Heck residence? He's like, yeah, my dad's got a real deep voice, he's like, yeah, you know, He's like, uh, this is 348 Heritage Hills. He's like, yeah. He's like, I just thought I would bring your trash back to you. He's like, what? He's like, yeah, the trash that you just dumped on in my trash at my house, all these bags of beer bottles and cans and everything else that you left some of your mail in there too. And I'm like, Josh, oh. So when you know when they're coming back, you act differently than if you didn't know. That's the point of that story, I suppose. Next part uh, of this is the introduction of the Holy Spirit. I have to carve a place out in this. This is so important. John chapters 14 through 16, likely at the moment of the Last Supper, um, right around that time, maybe right before it. Uh, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he goes through great effort to make an introduction. He's teeing something up, and he's introducing them in a new way 
to the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, who is going to be poured out over them. He calls him a helper. He calls him a gift. And here's what he says. This is what really stands out to me. He says, I'm getting ready to leave. I've got to go. When I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. It's going to be really good. Mansion we translated in English. He says, and then I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. So don't let your heart be troubled. But after I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Then here's what you may not understand, because I'm sure that they're thinking, no, don't leave us, Jesus, right? He says, here's, here's what you need to understand. It's actually better for you that I leave. Better for you that I leave, because when I go, then I can send the Holy Spirit. And this way you know me right now, here in person, walking with you, it's great, but it's getting ready to get better. Because you're going to know me in a way through the person of the Holy Spirit that you have never even experienced before. He's going to come and live inside of you. In fact, my father and I, we're going to come and make our home in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be a guide. He's going to be a comforter. He's going to be a healer. He's going to be a convictor to the world of sin. He is going to be your best friend if you will let him be. Wow. He's teeing up this amazing introduction. And it's encouraging their heart in a moment where they're about ready to grieve. Because the master is leaving. But the Holy Spirit is coming. And it's getting ready to get better. You see, the Holy Spirit has been active on the earth throughout all of history. It's just maybe they're not totally tuned in to this idea of relationship with him. But the Spirit of God has come upon many of the great leaders in the Bible all through the Old Testament. The power through the Holy Spirit comes upon men. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep at creation. You see what I'm saying? that The Spirit of God has been active as an operating agent in all of history. Uh, but they're just getting ready to meet him in a new way. So think about this for a second. Imagine if we uh, were walking around and you were going to a real nice building or place uh, and we've been seeing the results of all this amazing work getting done. Wow, that's beautiful. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You see all these things happening uh, and then all of a sudden one day we say, okay, um, I'm going to introduce you to the person who's been behind all of this. Let me introduce you to the one who's actually been doing all these things that you're marveling at right now. And not only are you going to get to meet him, if you'll let him, he's actually going to stay and be your best friend. Isn't that awesome? The introduction of the Holy Spirit that Jesus tees up. And as we know, obviously, a number of days later at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And then they walk in amazing power, authority, and most importantly, a closeness and an intimacy with a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Next one on the list is the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane. And so in the garden, I mentioned last week, uh, you've got the Mount of Olives, and then you've got Mount Zion, where the city and the temple were, and Jesus come down the mountain through the Kidron Valley and kind of back up into the city, and this is the travel corridor. Down here nestled in this valley is the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, so this is where Jesus goes. We know this is Thursday, right? If he's rested that night, goes to the cross the next morning. He goes into the garden. Gethsemane means, that word means oil press. Oil press. So there are a bunch of olive trees, hundreds of years old, actually, that these things can live and grow to be. And then they get little offshoots that actually continue to grow new parts of the tree. So parts die, but new parts live. So the tree 
like kind of never dies. It's amazing. And when we were in Israel, you could see all of these olive trees. And what they do is they take the olives and they put them into a press. And what has to happen, because the oil is actually the valuable resource that's in the olive, and that's what they want to extract. And so they'll take the olive, they'll put it in the press, and they will crush it with intense pressure and crushing. And as it's crushed and pressed, eventually the oil secretes out. And then they gather the oil, and it's the oil that's very valuable that's used for precious things. So here's what I want you to think about. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's in the oil press. He is agonizing over about what's getting ready to happen. Lord, take this cup from me. Right? He's, he's agonizing. He's, you talk about stress and pressure that we feel like a, norm, a bad day is. I mean, think about this one that he's having. He is getting ready to go to the cross. He's agonizing so much in the oil press, Gethsemane, that guess what actually starts to happen? He sweats blood. He sweats blood. Not metaphorically or figuratively, literally. There is a medical condition called hematidrosis, and when there's so much stress and agony on the person's mind and body, the capillaries on the surface of the skin can actually burst, and the skin can secrete blood. The precious blood of Jesus, the oil of the anointing, is already beginning to effuse from his body because of the agony that he is under. It's that blood that will continue to get poured out more and more over the next day that will eventually be that precious oil, that precious blood of Jesus that will wash us clean of all of our sins. You know what I think? I think sometimes we go through periods of really intense crushing and pressing. And it's just, it's just crushing us. But can I suggest to you something that there might be purpose in some of these moments that if you'll allow yourself to remain in the hands of the Lord like pliable clay even during the pressing and the crushing it's something as if an oil of an anointing that Jesus wants to give you for the next season of your life or where he's taking you will actually come out in some of those most difficult moments that you might go through there's purpose in that place amen okay so we also know that in the garden of Gethsemane um, the soldiers show up and they are getting ready to arrest Jesus. And there's a servant there by the name of Malchus, who is a servant to one of the high, to the high priest or one of the Sanhedrin. And uh, Malchus is there, and as they're getting ready to arrest Jesus, good old Peter starts to be Peter, uh, and he pulls out his sword, and he strikes Malchus and cuts off his ear in the moment of all this. And uh, he's panicking. We know that is the condition, the context of the situation. He's panicking. He's coming apart, right? And here's what Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. I got this, Peter. And he actually heals Malchus's ear. Now, this is a question for the ages. We'll never really know until we get to heaven, but I, I'm kind of just always wondered, uh, did he put the ear back on or did he grow a new ear? I mean, <laughs> scar around it, if you put it back on, or just grew out, like it was never gone, you know? 
But I love it because you see the compassion of Jesus. Even in this dark moment that he's in, he looks at this guy, Malchus, who's kind of an innocent bystander, and he just doesn't want the dude to live with one ear for the rest of his life. <laughs> no, that's not good. Let's give him his ear back and he live with two, you know. It's the compassion and the love of Jesus that's coming out. Um, but he says to Peter, oh, this is so good. He says, Peter, if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels and my father would send them from heaven and rescue me from this moment. Peter, shall I not drink this cup which has been given to me? Wow. He's telling Peter, Peter, there's a lot more going on than you understand. And everything is happening by my design. Peter, I don't need you to help me with my purpose for what I'm doing here. Because what's amazing to me is that Peter is this guy who three years ago, roughly, um, was called by Jesus to surrender his life and follow him. And in doing so, Peter actually laid down the livelihood of his trade, his net, for fishing. He so he cast down his net, right, and followed Jesus. So he laid down his way of doing life to follow Jesus. And if you're Peter, for the last three years, things have been pretty awesome. I mean, he's walking with Jesus. He's kind of right next to him, right? Uh, he's seeing miracles and healings happen. They're going around and preaching and teaching. They're traveling. I mean, this has been a great life for the last three years for Peter. But everything's starting to change. So put yourself in Peter's shoes and think, maybe have I been through moments like this? Everything's been so good. I, you know, we're, I'm following you, Jesus. We're seeing miracles and healings. Uh, everybody's getting healed. Things are happening everywhere. Life is really good. Now you're saying you got to go. I don't want you to go. You're going to leave. I don't really want you to leave. This is Now all of a sudden they're here. They're getting ready to take you. This is not good, Lord Jesus. I, I, I know you're in control, but I, I just for some reason right now, I'm not liking the way things are going. So I know I put down my net three years ago, but I, I just right now I got to take out a sword. And we lay things down and we follow God and there's fruit and success and things are happening. And then all of a sudden, this new level of our calling that bears more responsibility and more pressure sets in. And then we're faced with the decision, do I trust God at a new level and keep trusting? Or do I pick something back up in my hand after I've already laid things down at some place in the past? And we resume control that we once gave up. And Jesus is like, I got this. Let this be. And it's just messing with Peter so much, right? But Jesus is, he's very clear and purposeful about what's happening. The next scene that we jump forward to would be the trials. Oh, hallelujah. So there's what I see very clearly, there's four trials. Some people say there's six, but basically what happens is um, when they arrest Jesus, they take him to the Sanhedrin and the high priest. The Sanhedrin's kind of like the council, the religious council right there around the high priest. And he appears before the high priest first, his first trial. And then they keep him overnight, and then the next morning they send him to Pilate. Pilate looks at him and says, I don't find any fault in him. And he sends him to Herod, govern your own. You Jews deal with Jewish matters. They take him to Herod. Herod's like, I don't, I don't, I don't find any fault in him either. I mean... No, it's up to you guys. So then they're unhappy, they take him back to Pilate. Four trials, we can't get a trial today, right? It's like 30 days, six months, you know, it's like all happening, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> um, 
four trials, he's innocent in every single one. Think about that. Never proven guilty. Never. Yet he was still condemned to death. So let me just ask you a question. Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever had your accusers dig their heels in, and no matter what the evidence you attempt to try to present in front of them is, they will not see it. You are guilty. Because if you felt that way, I just want you to know that you're in good company. But Jesus was doing something even greater through the whole process. And so then these, the religious officials and the high priest, this, this one just kind of blows me away. It says in John's gospel that as they were trying to speed this thing along in this trial to get Jesus uh, killed before sundown, that they, they wouldn't even go into what's called the praetorium, which is kind of like a Gentile quarter, non-Jewish quarter, and they wouldn't go in there because the festival had already begun, and so then they would uh, become un- unholy. They would uh, become tainted in, in around that, right? They had to remain cleansed and stuff for the festival. Here, here's what's amazing to me. How, hypocrisy can be so blind. Oh, we, we, we can't go in there. We will get dirty. Oh, we got to stay clean. Yet you're getting ready to sentence an innocent man to death. <laughs> I just think we need some transparency and authenticity and realness in our leadership today, right? I mean, hypocrisy is just glaring on the scene and what these Jewish officials are doing because they're so overcome with their own greed. And then this last part of the trials I wanted to bring your attention to, Jesus uh, is talking to Pilate. Pilate's questioning him. Jesus is answering some of his questions. He's not answering all of his questions. He's just very discerning. He's very wise. He's placed his words perfectly in every setting, right? He never said anything. The father didn't tell him to stay. I mean, he's just, boom, he's just perfect. And Pilate's questioning him, and Jesus is answering some of them, not answering others. And Pilate says this. He says, do you not know that I have the authority to convict you to death or to set you free? He pulls the power card. Let me say it another way. Do you not know that I am in control of you right now? And you know what I love Jesus' response? I mean, he just lays it down. He says, you have no authority other than that which has been given to you by my Father in heaven. Anything you do, it's because he's allowing you to do it. That's what he's saying. Isn't that amazing? I just want you to be encouraged by that, that whatever you come up against, the promises of this word, when we exert our faith and we use authority according to the governance principles of the kingdom of heaven, God is in control. It doesn't matter what's happening in the natural scene. There is always something greater that's going on in the spirit realm. And the God of heaven is the God who fights for you. The God of heaven is the one who would dispatch angel armies to come to your aid to serve and accomplish whatever the works are that God wants to accomplish. There is no earthly army or earthly organization that could possibly stand a chance against the authority of the governance of the kingdom of heaven, which you are a citizen of if you know Jesus Christ. Next one is Peter's denial. Peter's denial. So this happens after Jesus has been arrested. Obviously, um, 
We know that Jesus predicted this. Peter is, he's probably already pretty messed up, right, from the whole garden scene and everything that went on and just like thinking about that whole deal. And so he's following Jesus where they're taking him. And on three different moments, he's questioned about knowing Jesus and he denies knowing Jesus. The third time was actually in the morning when the rooster code and he remembered, oh my gosh, the Lord said this would happen and I told him this would never happen. Peter's having a meltdown. I mean, he already came apart in the garden, but now the wheels are really coming off. He's denying his affiliation with Jesus. Did you know that one of the people who recognized Peter, it says, obviously intentionally and specifically in the Bible, it says that it was a relative of Malchus. Hey, it's the dude that cut my cousin's ear off, you know? It says he was a relative of Malchus. Peter's like, oh, I don't know him, you know? He's probably like, I shouldn't have cut that guy's ear off, you know? But he denies him three times. And here's what I believe. I think you have to read through the rest of the scripture to the close of the gospels to really get the full understanding of this. But uh, Peter was broken after this. He was damaged. And probably was sentencing himself, sentencing himself to some kind of condemnation after this had happened. But there's this beautiful moment at the end of John's gospel where Jesus shows up, reincarnated, or uh, sorry, resurrected Jesus shows up by shore and he has a conversation with Peter and he says Peter do you love me Peter do you love me Peter do you love me three times yes Lord yes Lord yes Lord and so here's what happens Jesus restored Peter he restored him because Peter he'd probably still be sitting back there in that pit of self-pity right now right Jesus says here's the deal Peter yeah, you denied me, and we need to get that worked out. You need, you need to deal with that. But here's my plan, Peter, not to leave you. I want to restore you, Peter, because I want to use you. See, Peter would go on to become the preeminent apostle in the birth of the New Testament church. He was an ap- a- apostle to the nth degree. Father knew he wanted to use Peter for that reason. For that purpose. So I think what Peter realized, yeah, you're broken, you're damaged right now, but in this place of where you've messed up, you know what actually abounds even more? Grace, forgiveness, and restoration. No, Peter, you didn't mess up too bad. In fact, I can still use you for that same amazing purpose that I had planned. Your purpose didn't get diminished because you just messed up, and now you're going to have to take a lesser purpose in the kingdom because you made a mistake. Good, isn't it? And so I think sometimes we maybe put ourselves into a place of condemnation. Conviction of sin is right. Condemnation is wrong. And I think what Jesus maybe wants you to hear today, if that's where you're at, yeah, you messed up, but where your sin is, grace abounds much more. And there's forgiveness, and there's restoration. So let's get you cleaned up, and let's get on with this, because I got a purpose for you, and it's a big thing to impact this, uni- this generation for me. And your purpose has not been diminished in any way. That's good news, isn't it? Really good news. Jesus restores Peter. And then the last one that I want to touch on today 
and this is where we'll, we'll wrap up part two, is what I would call the way of suffering. The way of suffering. In the Latin, there's a term that emerged in the first couple of centuries called the Via Dolorosa. You may be familiar with that. The way of suffering. If you go to Israel, you can actually, and it, it's not exact, precise points, but it's very close to the walk through the old Jewish corridor, which was the walk that Jesus took from the end of the trial to the hill of Calvary. And it's called the way of suffering. Why is it the way of suffering? Because after he was convicted in that trial as an innocent man, suffering began. He was beaten, tortured, mocked, spit on. You know that? But he endured a Roman scourging. Roman scourging, I, I don't know if we have a context for how brutal this is, but I want to show you a picture of a scourging device tool that was used by the Romans. We can put that up there. See all those leather straps that won't break? You see all those sharp, razor-sharp metal hooks on the end of that? And then the handle at the back? Like a whip. They would just continue to slap that up against the back sides. They'd turn them over, their whole body. Most people died from the infections of these wounds not many days after when they were scourged. But they suffered severely. It says that those hooks were just deep enough to where they would rip flesh and skin off the body, pull it off so that you could see inside to the organs and the tendons and the ligaments and all these things. Let me say it like this, he was mutilated. This was a fulfillment of a prophecy that Isaiah spoke about, about the coming Messiah. I want to read this to you so that we can appreciate the suffering, the way of suffering that Jesus endured for us. Isaiah 52, 14 says this, many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, the Messiah, the prophecy about the Messiah, he says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. Most scholars believe that that speaks of the scourging where his beard was literally ripped in pieces and chunks right off of his face. He got up from that he picked up his cross, he carried his cross all the way up the hill to Golgotha, Calvary. Fell, surely, multiple times. Cross is being drug on the road. Blood, probably squirting out by this point from these wounds. Why do I tell you that story so graphically? Because I want you to have this picture of that messy bloody, rugged cross. That way that Jesus walked where the blood was pouring out and the cross was getting beaten up and he was carrying it and he was being spit on and yelled at. He did all that for you and me. The Bible says, for the glory that was before him, he endured the cross. You think about how 
much our human tendency would want to be, I quit, I give up, I can't do it anymore, I'm done, no. And any moment in his flesh, in the, in the human side of him where that thought would creep in, he saw beyond the cross and he saw the glory. What's the glory? It was reuniting mankind, his children, back into relationship with him. And he said, it's worth it. I'm going to keep going. He said, I didn't turn my face away. I didn't look the other direction. I looked him in the face, and I took it. I took every bit of it, Isaiah says. <laughs> and so I'll ask you this question as we close. Is this not a God worth selling out for? Is this not a Jesus that's worth you being unashamed of in a culture of convenience or what other people might think? Is this not a God that's worth laying our life down so that we can lay hold of what he actually has planned for us? You see, as a minister of the gospel, I don't come to people and say, sell out, give up your life for some fickle, temporal philosophy, ideology that will be gone within 50 to 100 years because they never last. They rise and they fall. We don't have something transient or temporal or something that sounds good. We've got Jesus and we've got the cross. We've got 6,000 years of trackable history on an earth that he created, that he's been doing miracles on, and he wants to bring you into relationship with him, seal you for a purpose, and spend eternity with you. I mean, is that not a God that we're selling out for? Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Yes, Lord, we give you praise and honor. Oh, Jesus, I pray right now that you would begin to move. Move, Lord, minister to hearts. Hallelujah. What is the Spirit of God saying to you right now? I'm confident that he's speaking. I just wonder... Are you hearing? Is, what is he saying? Jesus said to Pilate on the trial, he said, those who are in the truth know my voice. It's part of your inheritance. It's part of your birthright. If you're a member of the family of God, then you are entitled to hear the voice of God for yourself. Still small voice of the person of the Holy Spirit. Guide, your comforter. What's he saying? Maybe you're here today and you would say, Man, I'm seeing Jesus in a new way. I didn't realize he did all that for me. I didn't really realize that I had a sentence of death from being born into this world until he came to bring me life. I would say I recognize that and I want to surrender my life to him. I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to go all in. I want to receive forgiveness and grace. I want to know with assurance that I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit that I will be in heaven for all of eternity. I don't want to fear the grave. If that's you. I want to encourage you in a moment I'm going to invite you to a prayer to lay your life down and give your heart to Christ. You can't earn this. This is not a works thing. It's a receiving a free gift of grace. But you do have to surrender your will. 
turn away from your old life and turn to him. Maybe you walked away some time ago in your past. You, you walked with Jesus before, but I don't know, you picked up a sword somewhere along the line. You're not even really sure where you picked it up, but it's in your hand now, and it's not going well. And you just know you need to get back to this place where you're walking closely with Jesus. Your heart desires it. You want it so bad. Don't let the enemy fool you into thinking that you've got to go through a checklist of accomplishments before Jesus will welcome you back. The moment your heart is ready, the Father is running to you with open arms. Maybe it's time for you to fall in love with Jesus all over again. You say, yeah, Pastor, today's my day. No turning back. Unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm ready. I'm going to live a life that God wants me to live. You need his strength to do it. Don't think you got to have it all figured out. Don't contemplate all your next moves. He will guide you. He will lead you. Is the desire of your heart to surrender today. You say, yes, I'm ready. On the count of three, would you shoot your hand up? I just want to lead you in a prayer. One, two, three, all over this place. God bless you, ma'am. I see your hand. God bless you, ma'am. I see your hand. Yes. Yes. God bless you. I commend you. That's the kind of boldness I'm talking about. You can put your hand down. Anybody else? I want to give my life to Christ, or I want to get back to walking with him closely again. Spirit of God, ministering and moving. Yes. As we pray, all the saints just quietly agreeing, joining in faith. Those of you that raise your hand, look, it's not about my words or your words. It's about the posture of your heart. Do you mean business with God? I promise you this. If you do, he does today bad as you want to know him, he wants to be with you even more. He paid the ultimate price to have that with you. You say, dear Father God, I just lay my will down. I turn from what I've known. I turn from a life of sin or regrets or mistakes. I just, I lay it all at your feet now, Lord. I'm letting go. I'm giving it to you. I'm turning entirely to you. thank you that by your precious blood you wash me clean from all my sin as far as the east is from the west he remembers it no more white as snow what the blood will do receive that now grace forgiveness perhaps even restoration God is restoring some I believe right now I sense this he is restoring some back to a place that you thought you could never get back to. Lord, I pray that you would just overwhelm them with your love, your grace, your forgiveness, the power of your restoration right now. Come against any spirit of condemnation, shame, guilt, any sentence that a man, a woman, young person has placed upon themselves, God, that you have not placed upon them, I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ that that be obliterated and broken off of their life. Freedom, forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, compassion, healing, restoration. He is so good. He loves you so much. He paid the ultimate price. He wants to be close to you. Receive him right now in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, where the Spirit 
of the Lord is there is freedom. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I announce to you today, you are free because the Son has set you free. You can walk in liberty and freedom and live a life of purpose and destiny from this point on. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen, amen. Would you stand to your feet with me? I'm going to invite our prayer team down to the front. If you're here today and you need prayer for anything at all, we would love to minister to you, encourage you, just share whatever it is that you're going through. We love you. I don't want anybody to leave without an opportunity to have prayer. Come right on down to the front if that's you. The rest of us, let's give the Lord a shout before we go. Come on, church. Because even through the deepest valleys, you go before. You'll never leave me, your love surrounds me, I won't When I'm broken and down to nothing, I know, I know that you are always up to something good. Yes, I know that you are always up to something good. understanding that you would know the joy of the Lord, that your strength would come from that joy every single day, hallelujah, of knowing that you are a son, you are a daughter of the Most High God, amen, amen. Don't forget, Easter Sunday next weekend, first time in the new facility. Tell somebody this week, I'm saving a seat for you.
Amen. Everybody have a wonderful, awesome day. Hope to see many of you Tuesday night.